Section 63 of Hidden Treasures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Merritt. Hidden Treasures by Harry A. Lewis. Edward Everett. Among the more eminent of eminent men stands Edward Everett in the annals of American history. We do not give his history to show how he struggled through privations, overcoming all obstacles, until victory at last crowned his efforts, as so many of our great men have been obliged to do. But we do delineate his achievements to illustrate what hard work will do provided a man has ability to develop. Yes, to show what hard work will do. But some will say, well, that does sound well, but I guess if Edward Everett had been an ordinary man, no amount of hard work would have made him the Edward Everett of history. Another may say, That's so. It is foolish to argue as you do and hold up such men as examples, intimating that their success is the result of hard work. And still another may say, Say what you will, you cannot gainsay the factor of opportunities, of luck if you choose to so designate it. We do not gainsay anything. We simply point to history. Read for yourself. Take eminent men, read their lives, and see if seven-tenths at least of our great men did not acquire success through their own effort. Read carefully and see if they did not largely make their own opportunities. True, all cannot be Everett's or Clay's, but by extraordinary effort and careful thought, anyone will better his or her condition. Sickness may come. They will be the better prepared. Losses will be more easily met and discharged. No man ever succeeded by waiting for something to turn up. The object of this work is not to make people delude themselves by any conceited ideas but to encourage, to inspire, to enkindle anew the fires of energy laying dormant. The point is, it is not a slumbering genius within people that it is our desire to stimulate, but a slumbering energy. We are content that others should take care of the genius. We are satisfied that any influence, no matter from what source it comes, that will awaken dormant energies will do the world more good than ten times the same amount of influence trying to prove that we are foreordained to be somebody or nobody. Mr. Everett was a man who fully comprehended and appreciated this fact. All great men understand that it is the making the most of one's talents that makes the most of our chances, which absolutely tells. Rufus Choate believed in hard work. When someone said to him that a certain fine achievement was the result of accident, he exclaimed, Nonsense! You might as well drop the Greek alphabet on the ground and expect to pick up the Iliad. Mr. Beecher has well said that every idle man has to be supported by some industrious man. Hard labor prevents hard luck. Fathers should teach their children that if anyone will not work, neither shall he attain success. 
Let us magnify our calling and be happy, but strive to progress. As before said, Mr. Everett fully understood all this, and great men innumerable could be quoted in support of this doctrine. The year 1794 must ever be memorable as the year in which Mr. Everett was ushered into the world, in which he was to figure as so prominent a factor. We have written a long preamble, but it is hoped that the reader has taken enough interest thus far to fully take in the points which we have endeavored to make, and it is further hoped that such being the case, the reader will, by the light of those ideas, read and digest the wonderful character before us. Undoubtedly, Everett possessed one of the greatest minds America has ever produced. But if he had rivaled Solomon in natural ability, he could not have entered Harvard College as a student at the age of thirteen, had he not been an indefatigable worker. And will any man delude himself into the belief that he could have graduated from such a school at the age of only seventeen, and at the head of his class, had he not exercised tremendous energy. Still further, do any of the readers who chance to read this volume think that he was picked up bodily and placed in the ministerial chair vacated by the gifted Buckminster when he was only nineteen, because he was lucky? A city preacher at nineteen, occupying one of the first pulpits in the land at nineteen. Why, he was gifted. Of course he was. And he was a tremendous worker. Thus was his success enhanced. At twenty he was appointed to a Greek professorship in Harvard College, and qualified himself by travel in Europe for four years. During that time he acquired that solid information concerning the history and principles of law and of the political systems of Europe, which formed the foundation of that broad statesmanship for which he was afterward distinguished. During his residence in Europe his range of study embraced the ancient classics, the modern languages, the history and principles of the civil and public law, and a comprehensive examination of the existing political systems of Europe. He returned home, and from that time until his death, he was recognized as one of the greatest orators of his time. In 1825 to 1834, he was a distinguished member of the National Congress. He then served three successive terms as governor of Massachusetts. In 1814, he was appointed minister to the English court. It was an important mission, for the relations of his government with that of England then wore a grave aspect. His official career in London was a marked success. His personal accomplishments made him a friend and favorite with the leading men and families of England. After this, he was sent as a commissioner to China and after his return from abroad, he was at once chosen president of Harvard College. He entered upon the duties of this new office with his characteristic energy and enthusiasm. 
but ill health compelled his resignation at the end of three years. Upon the death of his bosom friend, Daniel Webster, he was appointed to succeed to Webster's position at the head of President Fillmore's cabinet. Before the close of his duties as Secretary of State, he was chosen by the Massachusetts State Legislature to a seat in the National Senate. Once more, overwork compelled his withdrawal from active responsibility, and in May 1854, under the advice of his physician, he resigned his seat. But he was content to remain idle only a few months, when he entered with great zeal upon a new enterprise. The project of purchasing Mount Vernon and beautifying it as a memento of esteem to the nation's father attracted his attention, and his efforts in behalf of the association to raise money for the above-named object netted over $100,000, besides his valuable time and paying his own expenses. He afterwards raised many more thousands of dollars for the benefit of numerous charitable societies and objects. Emerging from private life at the opening of the Civil War, he gave himself incessantly to the defense of the Union. He died on the 14th of January, 1865, and was mourned throughout the whole North. Eulogies innumerable were called forth by the death of this intellectual phenomenon of the 19th century. End of section 63. Edward Everett. Recording by Tom Merritt.